Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of Collisions YYC. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. I am incredibly excited to be sitting here 16 months later from what sparked as an idea between two guys sitting around chatting, my good friend and co-conspirator, Mr. Kevin Crow. When Kevin challenged me and said, Tyler, there's incredible conversations going on in the city that are going to take us forward through the movers, the shakers, the innovators, the leaders of our post-secondary, our government, our venture capitalists. But he goes, no one's hearing about it. They're, 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 they're staying untold. We need to start a podcast. And we did. 100 episodes in, 16th month later, over 20,000 downloads, a consistent loyal audience of fans of Calgarians and Albertans who care about our province and believe in the road ahead. This show would not be possible without the amazing guests who contribute their time and the amazing audience who shares and engages and provides us with the feedback we need to keep this thing going forward. So who better to choose for my 100th guest than our mayor, the Honorable Nikit Denshi. He brought optimism and a tone for the future that believes that we are on the right path, but he also brought some very stark realities, which is ideally the theme of the show. We're positive, but we don't overlook the things that we can do better. Mental health and addiction and the realities that we face in our city all around us and some of the challenges, especially over the last 12 months through COVID-19. Anti-racism and our opportunity to do better. And the sheer challenges that exist from being a small, large city and all of the plus and minuses that that provides and the opportunities to make us better. He brings the reality of talent, innovation, place, business environment. He talks about our seven core industries and our opportunities to to diversify and to shed a little bit more light and a little bit more fame and to give a little bit more props to all of the other industries outside of the resource sector that, that make up our incredible ecosystem. Join me for a passionate and engaged, heartfelt chat with our mayor, Nahid Nechi. A warm collisions, 100th episode. Welcome to our mayor, the Honorable Nahid Nenshi. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me, and congratulations on 100 episodes. Thank you very much. Little, little did I know when this thing started about a year and a half ago, one, that it was even going to be a good idea, two, that I was going to take off and get to talk to the amazing Calgarians that I have. And when I was bearing down on 100 episodes, there was nobody I thought better suited to have on than the gentleman who's been at the helm for the last 10 years, through thick and thin, through floods and price corrections to COVID crisis, but to have the mayor on. So thank you. A huge thanks for coming on the show today. And I'm really looking forward to having just a good old fashioned chat. I'm thrilled to do it. Thank you. Well, let's start with the big, the elephant in the room, the buzz term, the word that gets overused, the words that go over, economic transformation. You've been at the helm of our city for the last 10 years through some really interesting times, floods in 2013, like I said, the structural change in our oil and gas sector, some of the fundamental big left hooks that our city's taken on. So I would love to just get on a really broad stage, your perspective on the economic transformation that we're clearly in, and we'll start to just really unpack it from there. I love your point of view on this. Sure. And let's not forget pandemic while we're at it. So, uh, yes. you, you, unfortunately I'd like to forget, but we cannot. <laughs> no, the, that's why each of us are in our own homes doing this conversation. But, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so right now at the moment, it's not too much to say that things look kind of dire for Calgary. We're dealing with a public health pandemic that everyone in the world is dealing with at the same time. We're dealing with a mental health and addictions crisis. Uh, which was there before the pandemic, but has been exacerbated by it. We're dealing with a real reckoning on what it means to be a place of opportunity for everyone, what it means to be truly anti-racist. And of course, we're dealing with a massive economic dislocation. And we're dealing with all those things all at the same time. So 
I'll start and we'll probably end here, which is to say that although things look gloomy, there is nowhere in the world I'd rather be than here uh, at this time. I think it is an opportunity for great generative creation of what it is we want to do and what it is we want to be. You see, when we hit a million people as a city, we moved from one league to another league, which is we moved from large, small city to small, large city. And large cities tend to create their own gravitational force around creating an economy because people want to live there. And I think that's the important place for us to start, especially with the pandemic in place, is to understand that much of our economic development strategy over the last 15 years or so has really been focused on creating a place with an unmatched quality of life, a place where people want to live, a place where people want to invest, and a place where people want to raise their families. And this may sound a little bit soft when we're getting into economic development. It's actually incredibly important. In an increasingly borderless world, uh, you know, we have to bank on talents and quality of life more than the more traditional elements of economic development. And that's really what our transformation has been all about. And this started before I was mayor with our economic development strategy in place at the time. Um, and since I've been mayor, we've done two major reworks of what that strategy looks like. The current one is called Calgary in the New Economy. And Calgary Economic Development pays me a commission every single time I say that title because they're worried that I keep forgetting about it. And it's based on... I, I appreciate the right motivations in the right places. <laughs> <laughs> I have not yet been paid. Um, but it's based on four pillars. And those four pillars are talent, innovation, place, and business environment. And so going through them quickly, business environment is about all the good old fashioned um, business development stuff you do, making sure you got low taxes, availability of land and so on and so on and so on, a lack of red tape. And in that way, Calgary is doing very well. We've got among the lowest business taxes in the country. In fact, in a recent study by the C. E. Howe Institute that looked at 50 urban areas across North America, Calgary came out with the lowest cost of doing business. But you don't win by just having a low cost of doing business. You don't. You got to have the other things in place as well. So when I talk about place, I talk about all those intangibles that make this a place where people want to live. So with all due respect to Silicon Valley, which has great weather, there's not a lot else there in terms of a great urban environment, arts, culture, other things to do, and so on. Uh, and so really pushing on that quality of life stuff is really important. As I, and as I never stop reminding people, last year, The Economist ranked us yet again, the very best city to live, not just in North America, but the entire Western Hemisphere, which is really something for a, you know, often frozen city on the Canadian prairies of a million and a third people. So place is something we've been focusing on for a long time, making the investments in the sorts of things that build the urban vibe. Um, Number three is talent. And that's where we have had challenges because we've had challenges translating the incredibly skilled workforce we have, one of the most educated workforces of any city in the world into the kind of skills that employers and investors are looking for. Uh, you know, as I put it, you know, folks who graduated University of Calgary with me, um, you know, and went to work at Shell as a petroleum engineer you know, think of themselves as a reservoir engineer. 
and they're waiting for a job as a reservoir engineer. Um, as opposed to thinking of themselves as a highly trained scientist with real skills that could be transferred to very different models. And so, you know, the example of adiabotics is a good one, but, but it's not enough. You know, adiabotics only works here in Calgary because they've been able to hire people from the oil patch and quickly train them up in the field of robotics and distribution. Um, but there aren't enough of those. And so figuring out how to transition our talent pool without having to build a brand new one is remains to be a challenge. And that's kind of the ecosystem investments that we've been making, for example, through the Opportunity Calgary Investment Fund. And then the final one is innovation. And there's a little bit that government and policy can do around innovation. But most of what can be done around innovation is what people are doing in companies, what entrepreneurs are doing, and how we figure out how to make those ideas collide, like naming your podcast, and come together and create new things. So that's really critical. I understand this is the longest answer to one question you've ever had. <laughs> it's, impre it's impressive, sir. I'm timing you, and you're, you're, you are taking the lead on, on the record time on this one. <laughs> there is a bit more, which is... We are also focused on seven core industries or verticals, if you prefer. I hate that term, so I just say industries. Those are energy in all its forms, conventional, unconventional, clean, green, renewable, all of it, transportation and logistics, travel and tourism, agri-food and agribusiness, life sciences, the creative industries, and financial services. And you'll notice I didn't say tech because we think of tech in a different way in our economic development strategy, which is as an enabler of growth and development in all other industries. So if you really want, you can just add tech to the end of each of the seven things I said. It's, tech, it's, it's, the, it's the underpinning of all the migrants. So, so, so look, I'll be thrilled if we have another Shopify pop up here in Calgary. And in fact, two of our largest success stories are in areas you wouldn't think of, you know, Benevity and employee benefits, basically, and what was called Solium, now ShareWorks, in a very, very niche area of financial services. But, you know, what we really know is that there's going to be billions and billions of dollars spent in the digitization across those seven industries, which Calgary is already strong in. And it makes sense for us to be able to enable those through the use of technology. I think I hit the record. Back to you. That was good. You're pushing the eight minute mark. That was excellent. Well done. Well, well done, sir. You should, you, you checked all of your, um, your meet your objectives, speak to your sponsors, get your, get your credits <laughs> in. Uh, curious, are we doing enough to talk about those diverse industries? Cause I love that you brought them up and guests bring them up, you know, time to time on the podcast, but I always feel they still kind of run under the like Solium, one of the biggest success stories that I'm going to joke, not enough people have heard about in our city. Are we doing enough to celebrate those and get it out there? And you know, I talk about them a lot. You talk about them a lot. Our colleagues at Calgary Economic Development talk about them a lot. I'm not convinced our provincial government knows these things exist yet. Uh, and I'd like to hear more from them about all of this stuff. Because ultimately, you know, we've been diversifying for so long. I graduated from the University of Calgary in 1994. 93, sorry, I should know the date of my own graduation. <laughs> um, I was a child prodigy. I was only seven years old, if you're trying to figure out the math. But... At that time, oil and gas accounted for about 50% of Calgary's GDP. Before the downturn in 2015, it was from 50% down to 30%. And certainly, I don't have more recent numbers, but certainly it's gone down a lot since then. So we've been, 
diversifying all over the place without anybody noticing. Energy remains our sensor and the world needs energy. And I believe access to clean, safe energy is the greatest poverty fighting tool we have. And there's no reason that Calgary should not be the center of the world's energy revolution. We've got all the smart people here. So we should be at the very center of clean energy, of clean tech and so on, as well as responsible conventional oil and gas. Um, and yeah, that's really important. And I talk about it a lot and pipelines are important and market access is important. But we also have to give some oxygen to all of these other great things that are going on and figure out how to build them up because otherwise we cannot succeed in the long run, especially in a post-pandemic work world. No, absolutely. And let's pivot back to that, back to the people, back to the reality of, like you said, the challenges around talent. And we've got an incredibly talented workforce that arguably went all in on a certain field of study or a certain field of expertise and a certain set of job titles. I guess when you think about what we're doing in some of the organization, I know you come from the background as an educator from MRU. Are we doing enough from that perspective? And I don't know, and I don't know, maybe my ignorance, where does the city and our, our post-secondary, do you, I guess, where do you guys partner up to try to amplify that transition and setting all these super smart people up for their next careers or their evolution of success? So as you know, uh, as you mentioned, I used to be a professor. And so I'm very interested in the whole idea of how post-secondary institutions can play a role in this. I think one of the challenges we've had is that provincial governments, as well as post-secondaries themselves, have had a pretty traditional view you know, let's create more four-year seats in computer science, for example, um, which is one way of doing it and certainly helpful for one generation. But what I'm really interested in and what we've been working a lot on is the idea of rapid retraining. How do I take someone who already has a science degree or an engineering degree or many years of experience in a technical field and quickly turn them into someone who can provide the skills that are needed by a new tech or AI or machine learning kind of company, you know, people who deal with seismic data, for example, are hugely experienced data scientists. So how do we quickly flip them over to the kind of data science work that's required for machine learning startups, for example? And, you know, it's not just about creating a code farm where you learn to code in six months. It has to be a bit deeper and a bit more linked the needs of the community than that. But, you know, we continue to have among the highest unemployment rate in the country, but we still have thousands of unfilled tech jobs in the city. So how do we reconcile those two things and how do we bring that supply together with that demand? That's a good question. Any thoughts on that? How do we, is it just that it's a process and it's going to take time or is there things that you see where we could maybe shortcut that and do it faster? I think there's a bit, there's many things here. Number one is you need employers to be creative in what they're looking for. Um, rather than look in a particular box, we need them to be able to be flexible enough to look in more boxes. That's why uh, Scott Gravel and Atabotics are an example I use a lot because that's been a core piece of their successes in finding their talent in unconventional places, particularly in the, in the, uh, in the energy sector. Number two is we got to give up our defensiveness. So, you know, we, tend to think that it's energy or, or that any investments in something may hurt the energy sector or so. And we got to get over it and build an and culture rather than an or culture um, and figure out ways that we can use some of the large companies in Calgary. And there are many of them. We still have the second highest number of head offices in Canada 
and figure out how to make those folks be the first customer for new and innovative ideas that start right here. Um, rather than sending you out somewhere to prove yourself before we believe in you. You know, you got to have Silicon Valley cred before we trust in you. My own organization, you know, City of Calgary buys hundreds of millions of goods and hundreds of millions of goods and services every year. And we have no ability at the moment to actually buy from startups. Because the systems that we use in our own procurement, you know, make it are all about risk aversion. And they're all about making it buying from people who have proven track records. So how do we change that? How do me and big big companies in Calgary become the first customer for a startup? Uh, so that's another big piece, creating that supply chain, creating that demand. And then the third bit, I think, really is the very specific stuff on how do we do retraining smart? So I think SAIT's new School of Digital Technology, which will be located in downtown Calgary, is a great first step in helping us think through that very, very quickly. I think we can use Bow Valley College, which has one of the best um, uh, track records anywhere in the world of training immigrants and refugees and new Canadians uh, to figure out how to train them specifically for these jobs that are going wanting. So there's a lot of quote unquote ecosystem work to be done. There's a lot of how do we get from the bench to the market stuff to be done, like with our new life sciences innovation hub with the University of Calgary. But there's also some quick wins here that I think we need to focus in better on. No, it's very interesting. Even from you know 14 months of doing this podcast, the amount of things that are like moving in the right direction now, it is incredibly inspiring. But there's that always that challenge is you know 10, 10, five, 10 years from now, we've got a lot of things in place. They're going to grow and blossom into those trees we need, but they're not necessarily giving us the shade right now with this group of individuals that are in limbo between these transition periods. And it's it's a challenging reality because we've a lot of these are not overnight solutions. But I do believe we're moving in the right direction. I, I echo what but you're saying. Some of them have it's, to be overnight solutions because people yeah. can't wait. You can't. No, because the very big reality. Right? Mm. What do you say? What do you say to the investor community? I've had a lot of guests on talk about that there is, and you and you said it about companies have to go somewhere else to be successful, then come back here. There's that's an underpinning, but I've also heard that they need to go somewhere else to raise money and then come back here, even though we have this incredibly wealthy province. Any any thoughts on on that, where we can maybe get better at supporting our local startup community? Yeah, there's an enormous amount of public wealth sloshing around in Calgary, looking for investment. The challenge is that a lot of it, and a lot of, frankly, a lot of very wealthy people in Calgary have made their money in one industry or two industries, and the real estate industry is another one as well, real mm -hmm. estate and construction, with a particular model of growth. Um, and that model has often relied on invest in an early stage company with the goal of selling to a bigger company as opposed to with the goal of creating a lasting firm that can grow right here and create a create champions here. And so this has been a real challenge. And I really, uh, I applaud a lot of investors and members of that community who are basically trying to get other individual investors off their butts and invest in funds <laughs> and so on um, to do this work. But that's going to take time, a lot of time. The thing that we do have going for us, though, is that even those international investors are becoming less location specific. They're becoming a bit more agnostic. So I know, for example, of a bunch of startups that, sure, they'll send one person to go work and live in Silicon Valley and do BizDev and investor uh, relations for them, but they'll keep most of their work and most of their development here where it's cheaper, you have less of a war for talents, you're not going to lose people to Google and Facebook next week. 
and that has been uh, a successful model for a number of folks, and we'll continue to look for new successful models that way. No, you you touched on it earlier also, like the the Canadian environment for immigration and and highly talented individuals to come here to help fill some of that that gap. I didn't realize just how you know beneficial it is compared to like you know I've talked to some individuals that help set up companies here for companies in Silicon Valley that are just looking to break out of that quote unquote rat race that's there and come to an environment where it's just it's just a different pace for talent, but you've also got way more secure environments to set up set up your teams in. There's two things that we can really capitalize on as Canadians that we should have done a better job over the last four years uh, when we had the chance with all the crazy politics in the U.S., but they still are (laughs) solid things that we need to do. Number one is a positive immigration story. So as anyone listening to this podcast knows, getting an H-1B visa in the United States is almost impossible. It's a lottery system. It's very bureaucratic. Here in Canada, your global skills visa, the equivalent to an H-1B you can get in two weeks. And just before the pandemic hit, I was in India literally the week before we closed down in Canada. I was in India and uh, I asked the people in India, are you actually processing these things in two weeks? That's the promise I always make. You know, are you really doing it? And they said, no, two weeks is way too long. These people can't wait that long. We can do it in eight or nine days. And so that was a remarkable thing uh, that they were doing even then pre-pandemic. So that's number one is that that piece. And then number two is the thing you allude to, which is, you know, look, Silicon Valley is not a very nice place these days. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of congestion. Quality of life's not high. But the most important thing is it's too damn expensive to live. And so that results in a major war for talent where all these smart young people go to Silicon Valley But really, the only way they can afford to live there is by getting a job with one of three companies. As I always say, one hardware company and two advertising firms. (laughs) And and so they're going to jump across the street for $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 just because they can't afford to live. Whereas in a place like Calgary, you don't have that problem and you can invest in your talent because they're going to stick around for the long-term return. Uh, And... That is, I think, something that's very attractive. So when we combine the fact that you can get people from around the world here and you can hold on to people here, that becomes a very compelling value proposition for investors. No, I appreciate that. I want to tie up something you said earlier, which I think, you know, you touched on mental health and addiction and some of the challenges. You talked about anti-racism, which is something that certainly been on my radar for extended period, but over the last year, especially, are we creating the type of environment in this city that from the outside, when you look at this as a place to immigrate to, are we appealing? Are we doing the right things to appear as a diverse environment that's welcoming and open on the global stage? Are we, are we doing good enough in that area? Yeah, we could do better. We can always do better. Uh, but that's been a big part of my work over these years. You know, helps that I look the way I do uh, and I can have uh, these conversations with people. But I mean, look, we've got one big problem, the weather. Yeah. And so, <laughs> it, it, I mean, gets I mean, cold here. it gets cold here. If you have the chance to move anywhere in the world, even within Canada, the reputation we have about the cold winters, which aren't really that bad here, but people think they are, um, is a problem. And so we make up for that by showing how you can succeed here, regardless of what you look like or how you worship or where you come from or whom you love, uh, that this is a place where we want you, that you belong here, that you can be safe here and that you can succeed here. And you can live an incredibly good quality of life, despite the weather here. Those are really the arguments that we have to trade on and we have to make sure that we live them and that they're true every day. 
No, hundred percent. And, and like you said, we can, we can, it's, it's getting better, but we can always, we can always do better. Hey, I know we're, I know we're drawn near. I know you're a busy guy. I don't want to, I can't not bring this up. The COVID situation, the realities of the pandemic, your perspective on the the whole dichotomy that's out there of this COVID versus the economy mindset. And I, I saw a few uh, quotes from yourself really trying to break that down. And I think it's something that I'll, this is going to air fairly quickly within the next week. So in reality, we're still in this thing. What are your thoughts on that? We've got to talk about it. I really am impatient with people who try to draw a distinction between public health or the economy. It's actually a ridiculous thing to do because if you don't have public health, you don't have an economy. And that's just not me being high-minded about it. It's quite serious. If you have a certain percentage of the workforce that's off sick and you have parents that have to stay home with kids because they're being isolated for two weeks, you can't actually run your economy. It's death by a thousand cuts instead of a swift, sharp circuit breaker to try and get people healthy in order to be able to work. So that, that's, that's the one reason why it's a foolish thing to say that we're willing to sacrifice public health in order to keep jobs in the economy. By the way, I mean, now I'm gonna sound uh, a little bit odd, but I want people to think about this. That's also a very old fashioned and very gendered view of the economy. Hmm, because it assumes that the economy works just fine when one of the parents has to stay home with the kid for two weeks. And by the way, that's never dad. So it really undervalues the work of mothers and of women uh, in the community, which bugs me. But I'll tell you the biggest problem. I never thought about it that way. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. It just assumes that a member, at least one member of the family is flexible enough to move in and out of the workforce to be able to handle illness in the family. Rather than saying, let's not have illness in the family. So it's a weird way to think about it, but it's really quite deep. Um, But the other problem that I have is, you know, we hear folks say, You know, I'm keeping the economy open to protect the poor, to protect the vulnerable. Now, I live here in Northeast Calgary, and we have among the highest COVID infection rates in the world. And no, it's not because people have big dinner parties for Diwali. It's because people have to go to work. It's because the folks who live here have jobs that don't allow them to work from home. They're providing essential services they're working in healthcare or in transportation and logistics or in retail sectors. So they got to go to work every day. So when you say I'm keeping the economy open to protect the poor and vulnerable, what you're actually saying is I'm keeping the economy open to force these folks to go to work every day in places that are often not safe. And that's why we end up with these huge infection rates among working class people. You know, if you, If you look at the data on who is getting infected and you solve for socioeconomic status, uh, type of employment and household size, you realize there's no racial effects whatsoever. There's no geographic effects whatsoever. It's people who got to go to work, who are not paid that well, and who tend to have their grandparents live with them to look after childcare. And so this is really the biggest issue that we've got. And for us to say we're keeping the economy open to protect these people is foolish. Uh, And maybe the right solution is to have sharper impact on the economy on certain kinds of businesses while ensuring folks have enough financial support to make it through when they're not getting enough hours. Um, So fundamentally, all of these things are tied together. And I'm getting a bit off topic, but one of the things that COVID has 
shown us is the fundamentally weak underpinnings of much of our economy. You know, in the height of the lockdown in the spring, you know, all due respect, nobody needed a podcaster. <laughs> nobody needed a securities <laughs> lawyer. No, but you couldn't find a podcast, Mike, to save your soul, but that's yeah. another joke. <laughs> nobody needed a securities lawyer, right? Um, nobody needed a management consultant, what I used to do. But we needed people to drive and work in warehouses. We needed people to work in the grocery store. And most of all, we needed that class of people that we never, ever talk about who get up very early in the morning and get on the bus. And they're almost all women and they're almost all new Canadians. And they go to work at hospitals and seniors' homes. They're the underpinning of the health sector. And the ones that work at private long-term care facilities, you know, they get there, they wake up grandparents up, they change their diapers, they give them breakfast, they work until lunch, and then they get on another bus because they're only given 30 hours a week so they don't have to be paid benefits. And they get on another bus and go across the city to do it all over again for their second full-time job. And we never, ever talk about this stuff. And so if one good thing comes out of this public health crisis, let it at least be that we really understand what makes our economy work and we start to value the things that we value. That's an interesting perspective. How, from, a, from, a, from a municipal or from a provincial standpoint, how do we start making changes to that? Because I appreciate it's a real issue and you, we need to look at it, but what can we do if we're going to talk about a real practical approach? How do we start making inroads into setting us up for a different outcome next time? Well, there's some honest to goodness policy things we have to do, which is to understand, first of all, that the healthcare system is made up of a lot more than doctors and nurses and allied health professionals who we value and we love and are incredibly important, but it's built on this underpinning of underpaid labor as well. And so if we want to supply uh, uh, privately run long-term care homes, for example, well, they have to operate by basic labor standards. Um, so there are some policy things that we have to do that may increase the overall cost, but will also build resilience in our system overall. There's some things that we need to do um, in terms of just how we think and work as a society to make sure that people in these underpaid jobs are safe. You know, that you're safe when you're taking the bus to work. You're safe when you are going to work in a uh, meatpacking plant. And not just safe from the knives and the blades, but also safe from getting sick. So I hope that this will allow us to restructure some of our workplaces, you know, even in a getting back to the kinds of things you talk about more often on this on this show. One of the things we've learned is that these vast open workspaces are actually not always safe for employees. Uh, they're not great places to not get sick. So do we bring back the cubicle? Do we bring back the closed office? How do we maintain creativity and innovation when we do that? There's lots of really important questions for employers that have come out of this, not just do I move to total remote workplace and let people work from home? It gets much more deep than that. No, it's a complex, it's a complex conversation. And I appreciate looking at it all the way up and down the value chain from talking about our startups and our resource sector down to the fact that if our economy can't function from a core services perspective, it doesn't let anything else happen. Like to think that the the hip is disconnected from the foot is a very narrow, a narrow way to look at our economy and the ecosystem that we all literally share together. And I do, I do appreciate that. And you get into the hard economics of startups and oil and gas and downturns and I'll be honest, sometimes it's easier to forget that part. I've had a few guests on recently talking about the healthcare system in Alberta. As our biggest line item across the board, you can't not talk about it and the economy at the same time. It's not, it's not possible. 
Remember, though, it's also, although it's extremely expensive for the province to run it, it's also an incredibly important tool that we don't talk about enough for attracting investment and talent. You know, when we were when we were doing our fun with Amazon a couple of years ago, we knew we were never going to get Amazon, but it gave us an opportunity to really think about what we have going for us. And in the case of Amazon, without any tax incentives whatsoever, simply because they weren't paying employee health care premiums, they would have saved billions of dollars being in downtown Calgary versus downtown Seattle. And so these are things that we have to start selling as well. No, if, if you don't tell your clients what your like your potential customers, what your value proposition is, they're not necessarily going to stumble on it themselves. And I think that's one thing that echoes loud and clear. And part of why I do this podcast is Calgarians sometimes don't tout our own benefits loud enough. We're a bit Great too group. humble or we're, or we're a bit too head down doing the thing that we do. And we don't share it with the rest of the world because this is an amazing place to live. I think we can, we can both reside on that. One last question, just a blue sky a little bit, the future ahead. We're working through this pandemic. This will pass. I'm not sure when or timeline. I don't have that crystal ball. When you start thinking about the future of Calgary and the things that get you excited about the road ahead, like real practical, like this, that, and the next thing, that's the future that I see for this city. What's on your list? Well, I am always, always driven and motivated by the entrepreneurial spirit of Calgarians. I really do believe this is a place where nobody cares who your daddy was or what you did before. (laughs) They care about the value of your ideas. You know, our little, our little uh, slogan, be part of the energy, is a double meaning. It doesn't just mean the energy sector. It means the electricity in the air, people doing deals of coming together. So number one, I think that we will remain to be a proud and diverse and increasingly anti-racist place that welcomes people from around the world to come and join the Indigenous people and the people who've been here for generations in crafting something brand new. You know, I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but I always say that our dreams are only as big as our sky and our sky is pretty darn big here. And so I think that's one big piece of it. The second is I really think that the energy sector, such as it is, is getting to a place where we'll have the ability to lead transition here in Calgary, where we will still be able to say to people that the supply of cheap, plentiful green energy is something that helps people around the world. And we want to be an important part of that globally. But then I also want to make sure that we maintain the thing that's kept us going all this time, which is that people want to live here. People want to move here. Kids who go to school away want to come back here. Uh, And we have to make sure that we are that magnet for extraordinary talent, because once the talent is here, everything else will follow. Yes. At the end of the day, it's still a people, it's still a people strategy, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Sir, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time today for the work you do in our, in our amazing city. And just to, just to have a good old fashioned chat with you, I feel an absolute honor. So please keep up the good work and uh, thank you so much. And I might, I might, I might hound you again in the future for another, for I, another I old fashioned chat. I feel like this time went away in two minutes. So, um, <laughs> because I didn't let you say anything. So with that, Tyler, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on 100 episodes. Congratulations on continuing this critical conversation for Calgary and for Canada. Thank you, sir. You as well. Have an awesome day. Take care.